This is Wildcat Dojo Conversations. Hi, welcome to another show. I'm Sensei Michelle. I'm Landon. And I'm Jackie. And today we have our friend and our student, Chance, along for the conversation. Say hi, Chance. Hello, everyone. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Something about school or... Sure, Sensei. I've been doing karate for about seven years now, and it has definitely changed the way I think and the way I process things. And it has also taught me to stay strong in life's worst moments. That's really nice. I'm actually going to take that advice today. Thanks for reminding me. (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) Dan. Okay. Today, our show is about the katana. The katana is, of course, the most famous of the Japanese blades. And I'm going to start out by saying that the source that I used was called SamuraiWorkshop.com. I also used High Consumption and another one called Interesting Information. Isn't that interesting? That's That's interesting information, (laughs) Sensei. I've used a book that I've had for many, many years called The Samurai Sword. It's a handbook by a man named John M. Yumoto. And his works and his illustrations really bring out the sword. All right. I was trying to think of a a funny segue, you know, like I had for water. Yes. But I couldn't think. Let's cut to it. (laughs) Let's cut to the chase there, Chance. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Let's just get started. How about I go that route? (laughs) Chance, start me out. Sure, Sensei. The katana has been called the soul of the samurai. Oh, That's cool, Chance. Yeah, that's a good piece of information. And I've heard that. I have heard that too, but I would like to add a weird one that highconsumption.com said samurai were often called armor-clad civil savages. That's kind of yuck if I'm just saying, but we mentioned in our last episode that get this, the katana, did you know, is possibly the most famous of all the swords? They are known to be deadly and status symbols and works of art all at the same time. I like that one, but I want to go back to the civil savages thing for just a second. (laughs) If the samurai were civil savages, what were the ronin? Savage civilians. (laughs) I'm just saying, right? That's something. I don't know. I don't know, but it sure sounds like one of those Zen cones. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. That was funny. It's hard to imagine that somebody would think of a deadly sword as a work of art. But I know people do. And I know that is one of the ways they sell them in the auctions today. That's true. But the bottom line is they were made to kill people. That is what they were made for. So when I was reading in High Consumption, they gave me a cool fact. And that was that the katana, whose blade length was 27 to 30 inches, and the wakasashi, whose blade length was one to two feet, equated to our modern rifle and sidearm, the sidearm being like the pistol. That is a really cool comparison. I got to say, I like my mind sat with that a minute when I read it. What do you think? I think that it's really cool to see the difference and just put it in perspective. You agree, Chance? Us, like what I find really fascinating is the mindset of these people who made the katana must have been thinking about how they can use it before they started making it. So how you can compare a katana to a modern day rifle is mind blowing to me. You're right. That's I didn't a good really one. think about it that way. Nice. Okay, so on we go. We're going to do on this episode what we did in the last episode and give you a very basic view of the parts. If you want to know all about the parts of the katana, just type it in a screen somewhere and you can get details upon details upon details. 
But we're going to round robin this just like always. And we're going to start with Landon. Okay. Well, of course, what's the obvious one? The blade. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) You have to have a blade. And with that, what do you got over there, Chance? So we obviously have the handle to the katana, the part where you grip the katana. And you have the sheath or the case for the blade, which is also called a scabbard. And the Japanese word for that is saya. And then perhaps my favorite part of the sword is the tsuba. It's the guard that separates the blade from the handle. But even if the sword is sleek and has absolutely no decoration, the tsuba has a, um, a style all to itself. And many, many artisans have made beautiful suba. Um, Sensei, what's on your suba? Okay, I'm going to say both the suba and the handle can be unbelievably ornate. Yes. My particular tsuba is really a simple piece of black iron, and it's a crane, but it's carved into it so you can actually see through the animal. It's really, oh, really, really pretty. Yours is beautiful. Right, and it's an oval. Mine is an oval shape. They come in all kinds of shapes. How about yours? My uh, suba is a square shape or almost a rectangle, and it doesn't have a scene on it, but it has modern views of what would look like Japanese trees. And I absolutely love it. I had my tsuba changed years ago. The one that's on there is not the one that came with it. Really? You can do that? Mm-hmm. Huh. You can have all the parts interchanged. Wow. That's so interesting. All right, Landon, take us home here. Okay. Finally, we come to the hamon. This means the blade pattern. It is the individual pattern that is made through the heating, sharpening, and polishing process. Many people have referred to this as a fingerprint. Did you know that? I did know that. It's cool. Because they're very beautiful. Us. All right. Now, let's go back to what was the beginning of the, the sword and talk a little bit about its history. The first idea of what would become a katana is called the chokuto, which developed sometime between the 2nd century BCE and 987 CE. It's straight with a short blade and a long handle. Also, although the site didn't say what it was made of, from the picture, it looked like some sort of a bronze mixture, which if you go back and listen to our first episode on swords, makes sense for that time period. So when we were talking about the arsenical bronze. I did see a picture of it. And first off, it's way cool. And secondly, the handle is as long as the blade. Each thing looked to be about 12 or 14 inches long. That really caught my eye. And, you know, I was blessed. One day, Master Collegian handed me his sword and said, carry this for me. And (laughs) on his blue sword, the handle was so much longer than any handle I had ever seen. So this reminded me of that moment. And his sword was a Japanese blade. And man, was it gorgeous. Oh, it was so beautiful. I mean, it's still around, but... Pretty, pretty, pretty. I sense it. Okay, moving on. Here's a fun thing I read. It's a legend, so there is no evidence to it. But the legend says a man named Amakuni first added the curve and the single-sided blade, and that he did that around 700 CE, which is a long time ago. Yes, it is. (laughs) The story goes that Amakuni noticed the straight sword was no match for the Mongols, and the new design was born. I saw that too, Chance. Cool, huh? It really is cool. And the fact how these people 
had that mindset so long ago with no technology or hardly any books is really like fascinating. The one I saw continued on to say, because nothing is known about Amakuni's death, he's said to be an immortal because of all the blood his swords have absorbed. It's kind of gross and yet kind of cool at the same time. That's right. And everything that I read said Amakuni is a legend. Me too. It, it, they really, Me three. <laughs> he sounded like um, somebody that was definitely well-respected at the time. I swear I didn't mean this as a funny thing. He was a cutting edge guy. <laughs> I know. And I don't mean it that way, but he, but he was, was before his time, right? Yes. I'm a sensei. Okay. Seriously. Now we're going to get back to non-legends. The reason this design is nearly indestructible is because of how it is made. Going back to high consumption, they say that Masamuni, and we mentioned him before, and we'll come back to him in another podcast, came up with the idea of using the four steel bars folded intricately to create an edge that wouldn't dull and a solid side that wouldn't break against opponent's weapons. Okay, that's some pressure to go after that cool fact. But let's add that not only are there four steel bars, but it is also tamahagani steel. The word tama means round and precious, kind of like a gem. And the word hagani means steel. It is a type of steel with a high carbon content, but not so much carbon that it makes the blade brittle. This Japanese tradition created a cutting edge that remained sharp in a blade that was unbreakable. What do you think about that, Chance? Pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I mean, that's a win-win situation. (laughs) It's true. Which is what they were going for, right? Us. But also, it is also the time when the blade started to curve. And one more cool thing. The demarcation between the cutting edge and the strong edge is called the shinogi. Hmm. That's cool. It is cool. The bottom line about the carbon, as I read it, is this. The higher carbon content makes it sharper And the side with the less carbon is the unbreakable side. So that's where that ends up lying. Wow. Okay, but the the process that was uh, allowing for the curve is that the swordsmith had to wrap the non-cutting edge in much thicker clay. And that caused it to cool much, much more slowly than the cutting edge. And then the cutting edge was able to contract and make the curve, allowing the sharpest cutting blade possible. Hmm. Wow. And it's so scientific. From such an early age that they were able to measure how much heat they needed and how much cooling time they needed to get that sharpest cutting blade possible. It's really a cool idea just to picture that, just to picture, you know, just the process, let alone coming up with the idea. Don't you think, Chance? I sense it. Did you guys read that the curve started nearer the handle in the beginning? I saw some of those. I did. You did too? I did. And that over time, they changed where the curve was, which, what? Right, right? And they did that so that the sharpest cutting edge would be at the cutting part of the blade. Which is transferred to modern TV infomercials where you see where the knife cuts, the meat, is in the center of the blade. Oh. Oh, I never... We need to watch more infomercials (laughs) in more detail, Landon. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) I, I never made the connection between that and... A katana? A katana. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Okay, away from TV and back to katanas, Landon. You've got something for us. (laughs) A sensei. The first katanas, as we know them to be shaped today, came during the Sengoku period, which is also known as the Warring Period. 
and went from the mid-1400s to the mid-1500s. When you think of all the different wars, the fact that that one was known as the Warring Period is hilarious <laughs> to me. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I have a fun fact. During a later period from the Warring Period, the Edo Period or the Tokugawa Period, a law was passed dictating the length of blades to 69 centimeters. Now, although they were measured in shaku, which is a Japanese foot, but it's based on the distance measured by a human hand from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the forefinger. Traditionally, the length varied by location or use, but now we have it standardized as, are you ready? 10 33rds meters. That's what a shaku now is. That's what a shaku now is. Okay. Let's get back to the katanas and the fact that the entire set is known as a daisho. And to say it again, it is made up of the longer blade, the katana, and its shorter pal. I just put air quotes out there, guys. How sick was that? The wakasashi. I love a wakasashi, by the way. I love a wakasashi. Uh, it's yeah. just perfect for like drawing. Like a big, long pocket knife. Yes. Every time that you say wakasashi, I think that you're going to say walkie-talkie. <laughs> And in a lot of sets, in some of the sets that I own, you get the tanto. And the tanto is the knife. And generally speaking, the knife blades are anywhere from 6 to 12 inches. On the tanto. On the tanto. Yes. Okay, I'm reading ahead, Landon, and I love this fact. All right, here we go. Did you guys know that back in the day, it was expected that a samurai would have his wakizashi with him at all times while sleeping? ready for an emergency, and also for seppuku, which we talked about in our Ronin episode. From the standpoint of being prepared, and except for the seppuku thing, this is kind of like modern times and a pocket knife, don't you think? Yes, I sensor. No offense is meant to the original swords because they're so beautiful and my pocket knife is... My pocket knife is kind of beautiful. It has a Mustang, the horse, carved on it. Hmm. I know. So. But as a general rule, pocket knives really are not ornate like swords were. No... But the ornate time for swords was the golden age of the sword, which came from around the 13th to the 17th century and just stopped immediately when gunpowder was founded. The Tokugawa period. That's right. That's when gunpowder entered into the picture and it changed everything. It changed the way of war, right? It changed, yes, and the way of life. Yeah. But you know that golden age chance? Don't you have a fact for me about that? Us. During that period, high consumption says that swordsmiths were considered rock stars. And Landon is rocking out. <laughs> With my sword. That is the actual word that they used. And that is not the first time we've heard that word. It was written in the histories about Funakoshi yes. for sure. And one other place. I can't remember where when I look back. Okay, let's stay on the golden age and do some trivia. You got it. I'll start you out. These swords became so important that they were present at a warrior's birth and his death to protect him in both this life and the afterlife. Thinking about that, it's cool. It's advanced. It reminds me of how the Egyptians would put things in the tombs. Right. And we learned about in that in school. They would, they would bury them with their treasures. Yes. Well, two art forms sprouted up to keep the traditions of the sword alive and also of the practitioner alive so that they could practice Kenjutsu and Kendo. When I looked up Kenjutsu, I realized that it was uh, a military form of Kendo. So, really? yes. So, hopefully, we'll get to one or both of these in another episode. And 
If you want to read a little bit about the philosophical art of the katana, I would recommend a book called The Sword and the Brush. Excellent book and so much to think about when you read it. It is an excellent book and it's really good for all ages. Well, all ages of 12 and up. <laughs> I mean, little kids wouldn't understand it. No. And while we're making suggestions, I suggest that you type making Japanese swords into a Google search. It is an interesting use of a half an hour. And if you do it in a half an hour, you'll be really using your self-control. That's right. (laughs) My Google search sent me to the Etsy site where I saw this great video of a man named Karahira Watanabe. It was a wonderful video. Landon went and looked it up, didn't you? Amazing. I mean, I never really understood how pristine and how much detail goes into it. And this man, like I wrote on my card that he was authentic. And I know that that word gets so overused today, but he was just like, there was no other way for him to be but this way. And he was humble about his making. Yes, he was. I also noticed on Etsy that there are 2,429 katana for sale on that site. Were they at all price ranges? I didn't look at any of them because I have no (laughs) self-control. I just went, wow. That's awesome. All right, Landon, pull us into more modern times for me. All right, into the modern times. Well, (laughs) in 1900, the token Kai was created to preserve the craftings of katanas. And I'll add to that. Today in Japan, a swordsmith needs to be licensed and use the methods that have been handed down for thousands of years. In fact, modern-day sword making takes a five-year apprenticeship and only about 180 working swordsmiths in 2017. That is not a lot of people, and it's down because in 1989, there were almost 300 swordsmiths. Let's hope some stay around and they keep it going, right? Yes, but I wonder how easy or difficult it is to make a living as a swordsmith because to make one blade, it could take up to 18 months. That does remind me of other craftsmen. Like I've seen woodworkers. I actually saw a person who makes boats by hand and and he's in exactly the same situation, which means that his product is really only at a high end market. It would have to be. Right? That's for sure. And here's something that I never really thought about before. Polishing the blade is its own profession. True. And the relationship between the swordsmith and the polisher has been compared to that of a composer and the musician that interprets his work. I thought that was way cool to read. Oh, that's it's kind of beautiful, isn't it? Us. Well, that individuality of interpretation from the polisher and the individuality of the sword maker means that every single blade is actually a soul in and of itself. Wouldn't you guys say? For sure. I sense it. And according to one sword maker named Akihara, People buy blades today to bring luck and banish evil at family events like births and weddings. Hmm. That's cool to me. Us. Yes. And all this has been really fun to share. But let's jump into the legends. You know how I love me, my legends. <laughs> you do. Right? Okay, say. Start me out. Shinto priests were brought in to bless the process and purify the blades. And here's another one. After blades were finished... They were tested by cutting through a stack of dead bodies or even live criminals. That's kind of gross. That's really gross. <laughs> but according to the legend, this was done by a master swordsman. Okay, but leaving legend behind for a minute, the art of the test cut is called Tameshigiri, and it has evolved into the cuts 
that are common today. And when I was reading that section, I made me remember about how you cut on Sensei J's stomach. Can I say she cut the cucumber? She did not cut Sensei J's stomach. (laughs) All right, good. (laughs) All right, guys, we're going to go off track here because we are going to move into where the blade itself was one of the stars of a movie. Ah, okay, Sensei. Should we start with Kill Bill? The name of the sword was Hatari Hanzo. None of us has seen it. Tweet us about what we're missing. Okay, so if you want to tell us all that we're missing in Kill Bill, and we hope they do, don't we, Landon? Us, we hope that you contact us on our Twitter, at Wildcat Dojo. They can reach us almost everywhere on the web at Wildcat Dojo. Facebook, YouTube, webpage. Us. But if you want to email us, because you're that old school, it's dojoconversations at AOL.com. All right. Who's up? I am because there's a movie that's called 13 Assassins, where the star is definitely the sword carnage. It's about right over might and ends, well, from what I read, with both the terrible Lord and his assassin mortally wounding each other simultaneously. We have always called this Ayuchi in an oral tradition. But when I looked it up, I couldn't find that word. However, it's possible I misspelled it. So I'm on the trail of Ayuchi. I agree. Okay, you're up. Okay. Then there's the classic Seven Samurai, which was turned into the Magnificent Seven. That's a great movie. That is a great, well, both of them are. Yes. The Magnificent Seven is a fine movie and it's a Western. Also, I've seen Seven Samurai, the original a few times. It's one of my favorite movies. I'm a big fan of the director, whose name is Akira Kurosawa. And if you don't know his work, you really have to check it out. I can't even begin to explain how beautiful and artsy his stuff is. So put that with the carnage of Seven Samurai. Yes. And you get the drift. I sensei. Okay. We have one more silly fun fact before (laughs) we close it out. You take it for me, Chance. Us. All over the internet. They say that the katana is a popular weapon for the zombie apocalypse. And when I read that zombie apocalypse, all I thought about was the go bags episode. And if anybody has a katana on their go bag, please, I'm begging you, tell us and show us because that's cool. No, but now that you're saying that, I may hook a wakasashi to mine because that'd be fun, right? That'd be fun. and Or we could, you know, have a pocket with the tanto coming out. Because it's just the right size for a backpack. Well, we have just about covered the katana, but I I do want to say that we're putting three episodes into swords and we are just touching the surface. There is so much information out there. So if this is something that really, really interests you, wow, you can just stay on this subject for years. It's that much information. It's true. Before we close out, let's just mention Honor Athletics. They're our sponsor. And if you mention Wildcat Dojo when you shop with them, it really helps us out. And plus you get a 10% discount. Woohoo! So that's honorathletics.com for all your karate needs and more. Us. Or dial. 770-945-5150. With that, I'm going to close it out. Thanks for coming, Chance. It was, it was a lot of fun, Sense. I'm looking forward to coming back on again. Nice. I, I'm looking forward to having you come out in person, to be honest with you. We were all sitting at the table together. That'll be fun, won't it? Us. Oh, yes. All right. Let's say good night. Bye, guys. Good night. Bye, everybody. Night, everybody. See you next week. Thanks for being here. Hope you join us again on Wildcat Dojo Conversations.